passage we're going to be looking at, um, there's actually four passages we'll be looking at, so yeah, you're going to be here a while this morning. Um, no, it, it stretches all the way from Genesis 35 to Jeremiah 31, prophecy, to Matthew chapter 2, which we'll be looking at now, and then to Revelation 22, the wide scope of the reality of God's plan of salvation. Rachel is relaxing at home in Bethlehem, enjoying the peace of sunset after a busy day. Her husband's at the city gates to see Benjamin about borrowing his mule. The bubbling peals of laughter as children play on the dusty road outside the home is just so tranquil. Rachel's small son squirms on her lap to join in, but he's not quite learned to walk yet. And so she strokes his hair, smiles, and offers him another mouthful of broth. A muffled yelp breaks the calm. A door slams, a baby cries. There's barely time to wonder which direction it's come from when out of the blue, an armed soldier strides into her home through the open door. He's huge and clad in dull armor. The drawn sword in his hand chills her blood. He strides in, wordlessly grabs her boy from her, and with one stroke ends his life. Too quickly, we glance past the words in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 to 18. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, says the text, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. Because they are no more. I found this painting on the web. Holman Hunt. Called The Triumph of the Innocence. And I'm sure you can make out what it's about. We see in the picture there. Mary and Joseph fleeing into Egypt. With baby Jesus on her lap. And then surrounding them are the spirits of the children who have been killed. Going with him. What a seeming waste, meaningless waste of human life. We experienced this in our country in the Christchurch mosque tragedy. Waste of human life. In our, year, in our country every year, thousands of babies aborted. What a meaningless waste of human life. To date, 1.55 million people have died worldwide from COVID. What a seemingly waste of meaning of human life. And yet we press on and we go about our everyday lives because we have to. But when Matthew recounts Herod's grisly attack on these babies, he doesn't just press on with a story. He stops 
he lingers over the grief to find meaning in it. And if you look at that text in Matthew chapter 2, he does this by drawing attention to another parallel, a prophecy which was being fulfilled in that very act of killing those babies. A prophecy was being fulfilled. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What's this all about? Well, the little town of Rama or Arame today was a small town in the north of Israel, just like Bethlehem. And 600 years before this killing of these babies, 600 years before, Jewish mothers had wept here in that town, like their ancestor Rachel, Jacob's wife, back in Genesis 35. So we've got three events here. You need to be clear in your heads. We've got Matthew recounting Herod's killing of the babies. 600 years before Jeremiah the prophet had spoken to mothers who were weeping because their babies and, and sons and fathers were being taken away. And then back in Genesis 35, Rachel this was, was weeping because she was dying, giving birth to Benjamin. And these three are connected in this prophecy. You see, Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31 was prophesying to these mothers as they wept to see their children, the husbands and others rounded up in the town, being taken into exile, saying to them, there is hope. And Matthew reminds us that God's light was born into a dark world. It was a dark world, the Roman time. A world with rulers happy to spill innocent blood to get their way. That's what Herod was doing. He was trying to conserve his own throne through infanticide. And he got his way, didn't he? But we can't point fingers at Herod. We, we get our way too, today. Our self-centered choices justify our actions. Our choice-oriented culture champions euthanasia now. Our lust for gratification fuels the sex trafficking industry in the world and the degradation of countless daughters and sons. So many of the choices that you and I make come at the cost of someone else, if we think about it. And so much sorrow in our world comes from us loving ourselves, no matter who pays the price. But the text we're looking at is not just a text of lostness and futility. The passage in Jeremiah 31 that Matthew quotes here keeps going. It doesn't stop. This is what the Lord says in Jeremiah 31, verse 16 to 17. And you can read that in Matthew. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Now Jeremiah that Matthew is quoting here is speaking to these women who are weeping for their children. 
And he's reminding them of the covenant of God with Israel. God has said, yes, you are going away, but I will bring you back. And though Israel must weep and mourn in captivity, rescue is on the way. There is hope. And so Jeremiah invites the exiles to grieve, but not without hope. And Matthew quotes Jeremiah to state that Jesus brings deliverance even when everything seems bleak. To that mother, weeping for her child who had just been killed by that soldier, everything must have seemed bleak and hopeless. And Matthew says, no, it isn't. There's good news in the tragedy. And so Matthew invites us, too, today to grieve for our world and everything happening in it, but with hope. He invites us to grieve with hope when the big stuff of life happens to you and I. When you get that news that you weren't expecting. When we see on our screens those images of the Christchurch massacre. When we see what happened on White Island recently. When COVID's worldwide death march continues. When our country's moral confusion is so blatant. When family members who don't reconcile saddens us. When that friend who's committed suicide is on our minds all the time. Matthew says to us, grieve. But with hope. Because each tragedy invites us to see the hope that is there for us to see. Why do we have hope? You see, we have hope because our hope lies not in a man-made solution like a vaccine for COVID. Yes, it's there, but it's a temporary hope, isn't it? Because we'll face death again one day. Our hope lies in, so, in something so much bigger, in the person of Jesus Christ. Our hope lies in God himself. If only mankind would see that God's hand is also in the vaccine to help us now. Our hope lies when God sent his own son to enter our world and to become one of us. However, God didn't enter our world insulated from pain and sorrow. When Jesus came into this world, what was happening around him? He was born into poor circumstances. Jesus had to flee as a refugee with his parents to Egypt so that he wouldn't be killed. He escaped the massacre. Today we might even call it a terrorist attack of Herod against those babies. And Jesus later became our man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Why? He came here to bring us hope. And so there's hope in the midst of tragedy. Back in Genesis 35, when Rachel died in giving birth to Benjamin, she didn't suffer in vain. And the prophecy points to this. He uses her name specifically. Rachel, as the person of Rachel of Genesis 35, wasn't there when those mothers were grieving when the children were going off to Babylon. But it's as if she's there, grieving for her descendants in the future, as their family members are led off. 
but she didn't suffer in vain. Her suffering was not to be without purpose. The Lord says through Jeremiah, they shall come again from the land of the enemy. There's hope. And so too, that's what happened. In the sorrow of the Babylonian exile, a new life became possible for a disciplined and a revived Israel. They came out of that desolation. And similarly, the sorrow of the bereaved mothers that we looked at in this passage, mothers who were crying because Herod had killed their babies. The sorrow was destined in divine providence to result in a great reward. Their children were the first casualties in the warfare that inevitably had to be waged between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God and His Christ. This was only the start. So, what does Matthew say? Matthew is saying to us in this passage, however bleak our world is today, however hopeless your circumstances, whatever they might be, may seem to you, however massive that wave of uncertainty you don't even know you might have to face in this coming year, there is hope. Why? Because Jesus lives on in Matthew's story. It doesn't end here with this tragedy, does it? The story lives on. Jesus lives on to become Jesus of Nazareth, who speaks with God's authority, who demonstrates his power by raising people from the dead, by curing people from diseases, by raising the lame, by willingly accepting death on the cross for your sin and for my sin. By becoming the child of sorrows, he lives to become the man of sorrows for us. And that's why in this broken world of 2020 we now live in, and we're coming to the end of, we can grieve for our world, but not without hope. The good news of hope gives perspective to our grief. I want to repeat that. There's a lot of grief around. There's a lot of sadness around. There's a lot of darkness around in our world. But it's all given perspective by hope. If hope wasn't there, it would be meaningless. And that's why you and I too should, with Jeremiah 31, say, Restrain your voice from weeping and restrain your eyes from tears. Grief and anxiety should not become a destination. You look around us in the world today and even friends of ours, for many of them, they can't get out of it. Grief and anxiety. Every day, it's become a destination. But it shouldn't be, you see, because there's hope. We should always give way to hope in practice and in the message we give out as believers. Let's not get sucked in by the attitudes around us. It's so easy to be influenced by anxiety around us. And suddenly we walk around as anxious human beings, portraying exactly the same thing as the world around us. The Lord says to us in this passage, lift your eyes. See the deliverance that's available in Jesus Christ. There is hope. doesn't matter what circumstance you're in now or what you may face. We don't know what's ahead of us. The good news gives perspective to anything we might face. And so in practice, believer, 
This is what it looks like in practice to you and I when we put our hope in Jesus Christ and we go through difficult times. This is what the Lord says to us. 1 Peter 5 verse 7. Listen to these words. Cast all your anxiety on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. This is the same Jesus who was in the manger, who grew up to be our Savior, who is the soon-to-be returning King, who is all-powerful, almighty God. He says to you, cast your cares on me. Cast your anxiety on me. And what anxiety? All your anxiety from the smallest to the greatest. Put it on me. Cast it on me. Don't hold back some because you don't trust that I can deal with it. Cast it all on me. And I care for you. Why do we hold back the rock of anxiety on our lives? And try and struggle through lives and live victorious lives when there's so much hope for us. Why? He says, cast your anxieties on Anything from the smallest, looking for a house, looking for a job, to the greatest. When will the Lord take me? I'm filled with cancer. I don't know what lies right ahead of me. Because I've never experienced death. Help me, Lord. Cast your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He loves you. He cares for you. So that's how we live out the love of Jesus Christ in practice, believers. And the world will see and know that Jesus lives in the way we live. And then in our message to unbelievers, this is what we say. And if you're an unbeliever here, if you haven't yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, if He is not yet Savior of your life, then this is the message we give to you as believers who believe in this Jesus Christ who is our hope. This is what we say. We say to you, we plead with you, come to Jesus Christ and be saved from the greatest tragedy you could ever experience. What is that? COVID? Death? No. The greatest tragedy you will ever experience is an eternity without Jesus Christ. And so we plead with you, Bow your knee to this Lord and Savior. What will He do? He will take away your nature of sin, which you currently have. And He will give you a new nature, which wants to make Him first, first priority in your life. Where you, found, where you first found yourself not even wanting to know about Him, turning your back on the things of God, now you're at least hearing the message. And so he's starting that work in your life. He will turn your life right around. And he will give you a new nature which wants to make him number one in your life. In the driving seat. Him doing the driving. You sitting next to him. And then once you've done that, he says to you, the same as to other believers. Because then you are a believer, he says... When you go through those massive things in life, cast all your anxiety on me because I care for you. Same message. You see, God's light was born into a very dark world so that all would not be meaningless, lost, and futile. 
And this baby who was saved from Herod and from the infanticide that was happening, this same baby is the risen Savior we worship at Christmas. We don't worship a little story here. We worship a mega reality of Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. He's our King. And He's the hope we hold on to as we live through the big stuff of life. The uncertainties that come our way. Because we're not absolved from those things. You and I as believers go through the big stuff of life, the same as your neighbor next door. But we have a living hope inside of us. And that makes all the difference. He is the hope we proclaim when we get alongside our neighbor who is going through the travail of weeping and tears. We get alongside them. We put our arms around them. We show them the love of Jesus Christ. We pray for them. And we hold out the message of hope to them. Do you see the reality of this little baby in a manger? And so right in the middle of that tragedy, with those mothers weeping for their children, hope was born. And we are encouraged and we are comforted by the hope of Jesus' first coming as we look forward with eager anticipation to His second coming. If He came the first time, He's going to come the second time because the first is a reality. The second is the same reality. And so we say with Revelation 22 verse 20, Come, Lord Jesus, come. We live with one eye on the sky, always aware that our lives line up with the way that Jesus Christ wants us to live through the power of His Spirit in the reality of His imminent appearing. We live coram Deo. We live in the face of God, right before God, in everything we see, do, think, and experience. Come, Lord Jesus. There's the hope of this baby, our King. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the reality of who you are. That you were God become man. You became one of us. You didn't isolate yourself from the hurts of this world. But you went through sorrow. You were put to death by your own creations. But you conquered death. When you rose up again on the third day. And then you ascended into the heavens. To proclaim that you are king. You have your hand on the reality of our lives. Every day. And it doesn't end there. As you've said and promised, as your covenant stands with us, you are soon to return. As you yourself have said in the book of Revelation, I'm coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. And Lord, I pray for any here that still do not know Jesus Christ. There is still time to bow the knee. But when you reappear, the time of grace will be over and then you will be the judge. No more time. And so I plead for their souls, Lord, through your spirit, draw them to you. May they know the love 
and the salvation and the forgiveness available in the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. Do your work among us, we pray. And Lord, as we turn around from this place in this week and we go into the homes and the society that you've put us in, may we live out the reality of Jesus Christ and the love he holds out to people. May they see that in our lives and hear that in the message we give. We ask this through the power of your spirit for the glory of you, our Father. Amen.